Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, so I want to start off by saying thank you to Andrew Riley and to Steve Elworth for helping us lay this foundation. I want to celebrate a little more what God has done here and ask you to pray some more with us. Thank you for applauding the Lord and what he's doing here. All across our country, uh, college students re, uh, re-engage their studies, we'll call it. We'll say it that way. And last week in our Grow to Go update, you saw this map where we've helped launch some uh, college ministries and some uh, work around the country. One of those there circled is called Embassy Church, uh, partnering with a group called the Salt Network. They plan a church and a college ministry at the same time. Uh, One of our previous college pastors helped do this. We've sent people, we've sent resources. They started during the pandemic, which meant it was extremely hard to get any traction. They couldn't find a place to meet. They couldn't meet students. Very few students were involved. This past uh, week, they launched their college ministry. IU is a tough place. It's a tough university to bring the gospel. And they had 300 students there. And I'm just like, yes, that's just awesome. Now we also celebrate what God has done here. Here's the picture Riley showed you uh, of what was going here on here last Sunday. Here's the picture I took for what it's worth. So what this means is um, every chair in this room was filled all the way around. And then there was another, a previous service where the chairs here were filled. That's an enormous number of people. If you were in the room in either of those services, a college student, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Here's why I bring all of that up. God has enabled us as a church to do something unique. Now, 50 years ago, the founding families and pastor said, we want to be on or near the campus. They were able to be on the campus. And because we're on the campus, uh, we've been investing in, in that. And we spend, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a million dollars annually of our budget in ministry to the campus because we want to see men and women make a decision for Christ, learn to follow him, and go out in this world as his ambassadors. And, and I've been here on staff. This is my 28th year. Uh, I've been around it because I went to college here and I was involved in the church for over 30 years. I've never seen anything like that. Um, and it was just, it's a, it's a blessing of the Lord. It means we need to continue to pray for Andrew and his team. That's an enormous amount of people to respond to, to follow up with, and to connect. But one of the things that I love about being a pastor of this church and this location, being able to be here as I have over the years, is I meet people all the time that may come back into this room. And while the room may have changed shape, and the room hadn't changed shape, while the stage has changed shape, the colors are different, they will often say something like this to me. I was sitting right here. I was sitting by that pole. I was sitting over here, whether the chair was in that place or not. And that's where, that's where my life began to change. The gospel was presented by somebody. And I began to believe, and my life changed and the trajectory of my life changed 
and the and my relationships changed and my marriage changed and my vocation changed and I've heard it over and over and over again and it is one of the joys of being involved with you in this church. And so I just want you to pray with me this morning for the seat you're sitting in that God would bring back the students that were here. That the the students that were sitting there with you I mean, last week, the sitting in the seat you're in, that you might pray for them. When I was a student here and came to this church, uh, I had a dear friend, and I wanted him to know Jesus. And, he, and I said, would you come to church with me? And he said, yeah, sure. When is it? And he was always punctual. And we sat right over there. There was just a few problems. One, he was way overdressed. Two, he was still drunk from the night before. So we just leaned into him on either side of him as he slept and snored. And in time, Jesus entered into his heart and he changed his life. To have a church where 630 students can come as they are and hear the gospel. And Andrew did an amazing job. What a gifted communicator and leader he is. So I, I'm overflowing is not a word that just doesn't capture the joy that's in my heart and the number of students in whose lives can be uh, impacted by Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's an interesting day. And would God be so gracious as to use our church to light a fire on this campus in a way that would require all of us to give of ourselves in ways we haven't thought of yet. Money, time, resources. We have, we have people out there parking cars on Sunday morning. Do you know what it's like when 630 people come on a Sunday night and the fraternities are sharing the parking lot? There's so many ways to help. Thank you for giving. Thank you for praying. Thank you for serving or host homes that you open your home to, people cook, it's going to take us all. And it's such a thrill, such a thrill. So pray for the seat you're in and allow me to guide us. Father God, thank you so very much for our morning. Thank you for each chair in this room. We pray for the men and women who sat in them last Sunday night, that you would bring them back. We pray, Lord, for the ones that will sit here. Would you, in your gracious um, kindness, redeem, heal, transform, enlist, send, forever change the students that are making their way onto this property. Give us wisdom, give us insight, give us the resources and the, all that we need for what you're bringing to, the, to us as a church. We pray for Andrew Riley, his team, his wife, his marriage, their families, that you would protect and guard them, that you give them wisdom as they're just um, overrun with new faces. And we thank you that there is a hunger, a growing hunger, to know where to look for you, where to understand purpose and meaning in life. We're truly grateful, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for celebrating that with me. Um, my wife and I were on a little vacation. We went on a cruise. If you've ever done that, uh, one of the things there's plenty of is food. 
And the buffet is uh, the buffet is an interesting uh, it's an interesting test and that's enough. Uh, you know, when you get your plate full of the uh, uh, crispy bacon and you're really you're kind of on your second breakfast and you're thinking, is that enough or should I get some more? The buffet is not designed to say, whoa, stop. The buffet is just saying, hey, here I am. Take what you want as much as you want. Come on back if you want. We live in a culture now where there's so much information out there. It's like a buffet. You can dial into anything and go, hey, I want some information about this. I'm trying to make this decision in my life and I can Google it. You want to have some fun? Google the most Googled questions. It's a great little list. They publish them every year. Um, but we, we can go anywhere. And today, when we close out our series on the Bible, the question we're going to ask and, and present is, is it enough? Is it enough information for life to understand who God is, to understand who we are, to understand the complexities of life? Because this is, it's really, a, it's really a statement to Christians, people who, who believe in Christ and who believe in the Bible. So if you're here and you're, and you're investigating, you need to understand that. That'll be more clear as we go. But what I find is that many Christians, um, for, for some of the complexities in their life, they no longer go to the Bible. They go other places. And I just wonder, is it enough for you? Here's how, here's how we say it at the church. Biblical truth, we call it. We trust God's word, the Bible, to be sufficient and relevant to direct everything we do. That's an enormous statement. That's a huge statement. Everything we do? Wow. And so we want to kind of lean into that. With all the options that are available today, we have to find new, new languages to help us understand all the options. You've probably heard of the, the acronym FOMO, the fear of missing out. How about this new one, FOBO, the fear of better options, right? I don't know if this is the best option. I don't know if I've got the best information. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep doing this. And so the, the question we have to ask is, is it enough? And the way we're going to kind of investigate this is to, is to look at the life of Jesus and, and ask <clears throat> from the way he talked about, the way he used the Bible, was it enough for him? And the implication is pretty clear. If it's enough for him, it should be enough for us. So in our little outline, Jesus trusted the Bible as enough. It would be enough for him to navigate through his life. And we're going to look at some passages in the New Testament to kind of demonstrate that. The first one was, it was enough to help him to resist temptation. To know what was right and what was wrong and, and what to act on. And so I'm going to read 11 verses out of Matthew chapter 4. And I want you to listen for the phrases. They'll be highlighted when Jesus says them on the screen behind me. It is written, those words. Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's a whole lot going on right there. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. 
And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. The devil's using the Bible too. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, hey, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God only and serve, and serve him only. And the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Jesus is facing some serious temptation before he begins his public ministry. And the first thing I want you to realize is that he accepted the Bible as inspired and every word as important. He didn't say some of the words in the first temptation. Every word is important. Everyone. In the second temptation, the devil cranks up the, uh, the, the, the temptation by saying, hey, it's written. If we're going to play with, play with the Bible, I'm going to use it too. And he quotes from Psalm 91. Here's the problem, and the devil will always do this. He won't say exactly what God said, or he won't say all that he said. And that's what he did here. He didn't quote the entire passage. He quoted part of it. He left out to guard you in all your ways, the first half of verse 11. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Jesus is going to say, listen, I'm going to bank on all the words of God, not some of the words of God. The, the promise was that God would protect the righteous from making silly mistakes as they walked with him. And that's exactly what the devil was asking Jesus to do. I want you to try and make a silly mistake. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to put the Lord to the test by trusting some of his words. I'm going to trust all of his words. And then Jesus goes on in this, and, and he's accepting these statements to be propositionally true. Now, why is that important? Because you'll hear people say, the message of the Bible is true, but not the words of the Bible. The message is true, and what they point to is true, but various statements in the Old and New Testament, yet yeah, not so much. And my only point is, that's not what Jesus does. He says, yeah, it's going to all be true. He didn't say they witnessed to the truth. He said, I'm going to rely on them as they convey truth in and of themselves. So in your outline here, we say it this way. Jesus trusted the Bible as enough. He trusted every single word. Wow, got quiet in here. Air conditioners are off. Some of you are like, finally. They've only been running for six months straight, right? Now, if you looked at how Jesus dealt with the New Testament, you said, you know, he kind of agreed with it generally. So I guess he could trust it generally. But if you see that he digs in and he's trusting the minutia of God's word, then you would think he's trusting it, you know, thoroughly. Now, Jesus, we're going to look at something Jesus said, and then we're going to look at a, at a time he applied it. And what he says is, I'm trusting it down into the minutia. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He's speaking to a crowd, said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Wow. First, the unbelievable promise. I'm going to fulfill. I'm going to do it. 
And the law and the prophets, they're not going to be abolished. They're going to be fulfilled in me. Well, what's the scope of law and prophets? How much of that, how much of the Old Testament is it? That's all of it. When he says law and prophets, he's covering it all. Well, to, to what level of detail will these promises be fulfilled? And then Jesus says this, down to the smallest letter and to the least stroke of a pen. What's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet? I'm glad you asked. Uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The smallest letter is a yod. This is what it looks like. Ta-da! It looks like an apostrophe, and, and, you know, and that's about how much space it would take up on an old typewriter and spacing out letters, you know, all the same space. It's just, it's just a little stroke, but it's a letter. And, and when you change letters in a word, you change the word. And when you change the word, you change the meaning. And words build sentences, sentences create, I mean, yeah. Letters build words, words build sentences, and sentences create promises. And he's basically saying, you know what? I'm going to trust the Bible down to the letter, to the letter. And then he goes on and he says, not only that, but I'm going to trust it to the least stroke of a pen. In the King James, it would say jot and tittle. The jot is the smallest letter. The tittle is just a part of a Hebrew letter, tiny little piece of it. What does that look like, Kevin? I'm glad you asked. Um, so here, here are two sets of Hebrew letters that look very similar, particularly when you write them by hand. I, I didn't like the way they appeared in type. I just want you to look at the, the second pair. You're, you're reading this way. The little little shelf on the bait. It's a, it's a B and a K. See that little shelf that sticks out on the bottom? That's a tittle. It's just a little bitty piece of the letter. But it changes the letter. The letters change the words. Jesus is saying, I'm going to trust that the fulfillments of the promises of the Old Testament down to the, down to the word and, and down to the letter. Now, of course, we have this in English letters too. You just do the smallest change and everything changes. Here are four words that have various tittles added to them. The first one, fun. Hey, I want you to come over this afternoon. We're going to have some fun. And you're like, awesome. We're going to watch the game. That's great. But if I close that F in, then I'm saying, hey, well, come on over. We're going to have some pun. And you're like, eh, Kevin, I don't really like puns. But if you think they're fun, I might come over anyway. What are we eating? Um, if we add a little more to that, just another little stroke, then you were coming over for a run. And you're like, nah, I'm out. Tap me out. I'm done. I'm not interested in that. And then if you close that in, of course, you're coming over for a bun and you don't really know what that means now. And it's awkward. And you're just like, ah, I've got other plans. Um, <laughs> Jesus's point is, is pretty, his promises that all the promises of the Bible will be fulfilled precisely as they were spelled out and can be relied upon. This is how Jesus viewed the Bible. <clears throat> this is why it was enough for him. So Jesus Trusted the Bible enough. He trusted every word, and he trusted every letter. Every letter. And I want to show you an, an example, a very sophisticated argument that Jesus makes where he applies this, this trust. Jesus was often, the, the more he taught, the more pushback he received. The more he talked about the kingdom and himself, the more challenged he became. And oftentimes, people would gather together and confront him. On one occasion, he spun the argument around and he just asked the Pharisees, hey, tell me about the Messiah. Whose son is he? Now, granted, he's about to set them up. But here's how it is. It's in Matthew 22. 
He said to them, the Pharisees, excuse me, excuse me, uh, I'm reading the wrong thing. 22 verse 41, here's what it says. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what about, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. Their answer's quick, it's accurate, it's just not complete. So then he follows up with another question and quotes Psalm 110. This is what he says in the next verse. He said to them, how is it then that David, who wrote the Psalm 110, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, and that being inspired by God, calls him Lord? For he says, so follow me, look right here, don't look up there. I think I lost people on this last time. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? He's David's. I mean, yeah, he's David's son. All right. Then how does David, writing Psalm 110, inspired by the Spirit, if that's his son, how does he call him Lord? This is the argument. So that's what he says here. How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Very sophisticated argument. He is David's son in his humanity. But because the Messiah is also God, David calls him Lord. This is the argument that Jesus is making. You see how sophisticated it is. He's pushing them into the corner and he wants them to acknowledge this, that the Messiah is divine. And he uses Psalm 110 to make his argument. And the possessive pronoun my is the key word in the whole argument. The whole argument is built on that phrase. And that word in Hebrew is spelled with one letter. And that letter is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which we've already seen. Jesus hangs his entire argument on a yod. Now, when we have words in English that end with an S and we want to make them possessive, my stuff, we add an apostrophe. We have a similar thing. But the whole argument is built on this idea. So not only, and what I'm trying to show you is that when Jesus said, I trust it down to the letter, he also made the argument down to the letter. Orthodox Christianity is built on the idea that Jesus is both God and man. It's fundamental to our understanding. So Jesus saw the Bible as reliable down to the words, down to the letters, that the promises are true and trustworthy, stating propositional truth, not cultural uh, axioms. Now, the last little thing I want to show you is Jesus was teaching about life and death, and he's going to allude to resurrection in the story. And he teaches a story about um, a rich man and a poor man. The poor man is named Lazarus, who is righteous. And both men die, and they go to one. Uh, Lazarus goes to heaven, which is represented by Abraham, and uh, the rich man goes to hell. And and the person in hell is like talking to those in heaven and going, hey, could you send somebody to my family so they don't end up here? This is all Jesus talking. It's in Luke chapter 16. 
And so this is the man in hell. He says, he answered and says, I beg you, Father, speaking of Abraham, would you send Lazarus, the, the poor man that the rich man abused, to my family? For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them, which is saying they have the Bible. Let them trust that. No, Father Abraham, he replied, but if someone comes back from the dead, they will repent. Of course, Jesus is teaching this. He's saying this. He's alluding to his future resurrection and the fact that it would convince some, but not all. And he said to them, if they don't listen to, law, uh, listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not conv be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus saw the Bible as enough. He trusted the letters. He trusted the, uh, the words, the letters, and he declared that it was enough to lead to himself. He had full confidence. If he had full confidence, let me ask you, Christian, do you find it to be enough? If the Bible was enough for Jesus, is it enough for you? And of course, this is a great challenge. Most people think when they come to the Bible, they've come to a great restricting text. It's a straitjacket to any kind of fun that I might want to have in life, as opposed to a love letter to give us freedom to live an abundant life. Totally different kind of mindset. Every person has a worldview in every culture. We get that from the world around us. And every Christian is challenged to transform their worldview into a biblical worldview. Whether you grow up in Europe or Africa, Australia or America, that's the challenge of every Christian. That's why in Romans chapter 12, as Paul begins to apply all the truths that he's taught in the first 11 chapters, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, Offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God wants us to be transformed to understand who He is. Because the Bible isn't enough, let me ask you this. This is a tough question. Will you trust it in everything? Will you trust it in everything? And you may be sitting there going, hey, Kevin, this is my current problem at my house. I got a bad carburetor on my edger. You might be going, you know what? I went from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing on carburetors in there. True. We're going to get to that. We're not talking about that piece the bigger pieces of life. Actually, I, I want to look at I want to look at three. Three things that we don't talk about over dinner. We don't talk about when we're with our in-laws. We rarely talk about with our roommates because they blow up. You're not going to talk about them today when you're getting ready to watch the game. You right? But I wonder if these three issues, if the Bible begins to form your thinking about them. Because the Bible is enough, will you trust it in everything? Here's the first one. Money. <laughs> there it is. It's a biggie. It's a biggie. Everybody in America has a small touch of what somebody coined a phrase, affluenza. Not influenza, affluenza. 
There are people in our church from other cultures. They can testify to the fact that every American, I would say every American, has more than most of the world. We're all affected by it. Question is, when it comes to money, how much to make, how much to keep, how much to spend, what to spend it on, where do you go? What buffet of knowledge do you go to? Do you just tap in and go, this is what I want. I've worked hard for it, and so this is what I get. Do you go to social media and go, let's see what everybody else has, and let me see if I can one-up it? Or do you go, you know what? The Bible is enough to guide me in this. It says an enormous amount about money and possessions, 2,300 verses on money and possessions. 15% of what Jesus taught was about money. Why? Because it is such a temptation for us to trust it over him. He said you can't serve God and money. You're going to hate one and love the other. How much of this book forms your convictions about money? The Bible is not going to tell you how to spend it but it will begin to help shape and form your view of it. And that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about, right? You go there first and go, hey, there's a lot in here about money and possessions. I'm going to go into that. Or do you go to a different source? Is this enough? And we're saying it's probably more than enough. So money, it's rain, huh? Okay, we have a leak over here. So yeah, Casey, you might get wet. Uh, and we'll celebrate that because, because it's rain. <laughs> Who would have thunk? <laughs> we want rain. All right, so money. How about this next one? Sexuality. Sexual energy. Now, some of you are like, well, sure. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. But I meet many Christians who first don't go to the Bible to understand sexuality. They go under the buffet of knowledge and cultural perspective first. That's their first stop. And then they're surprised when it doesn't quite line up with the Bible. I'm going to try something here. No, I can't do it. I was going to try to take this... Um, music stand and straddle it. But as you can see, it's, it's a little high. Got your attention though, didn't it? And so, the, <laughs> I've been gone a little bit. It's so just so the whole room can see. So if I were to straddle this in front of you, chances are I'd be rather uncomfortable. True? Thank you. Um, that's what happens when we straddle things. And then we blame it on the fence when it's really our fault. And so when it comes to issues like sexuality, can we not agree that the Bible says the context for sexual activity is in a committed, loving relationship between a man and a woman? Okay, well, what do I do with all my sexual energy when I'm dating? Does the Bible not speak to, to this? As a, we're not supposed to just have casual hookup sex? Well, what do I do if I have a desire that is same-sex attracted? Does the Bible not 
talk about this. Now, the caricature of the world is often that the Bible is just a yelling. We are sexual people and, we, and we're all sexually broken. And the Bible has spoken about sexuality and sexual energy from the beginning. So there's plenty in there. The question is, is it enough? Is it enough? Or do I need to go somewhere else and dial up some, something else? And I meet many Christians that have just punted. I can't, but I can't trust the words can't trust the letters, can't trust that, you know. I know it's a challenge. It's a challenge for everybody. But is it enough? The Apostle Paul would address this issue, sexual issues, to an early church that was not Jewish in its background, but Gentile. So they didn't have the Old Testament laws. and They had a secular view, let's call it. And so he had to teach them on it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a lot of teaching on sexuality. And it ends with this statement, do you not know, which means I think that he actually talked to them about it as they planted this new church. Like we saw in Bloomington, Illinois, and new converts that are coming from a different worldview. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received? from God when you trusted Christ, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's a strong statement. Is it enough? Is it enough? Okay, that one's uncomfortable enough. We'll move on. Well, before we do, let me just say this. I'm, I'm joking as I talk about these things because they're heavy. And we're trying to carry you along in the conversation. And we all struggle. So let's just put that out there. And there is, there is a way to turn to this and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to step out, I'm going to step into this and trust what God says. And that may be a journey from where you are to where you want to be. I get that. Right? I'm not just trying to say stop and start. See, I'm asking you to consider rethinking these huge issues that are all around us. And is the Bible enough? We're about to start a series in Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11. There's a whole lot there. And that's why we prefaced it with this. To prepare us to trust what it says. About humanity, about God, about sin. So I, I know that as I joke about it, as I have some levity in here, that if you're being convicted that I need to move from where I am to somewhere else, it's a good thing. And God will be there and graciously move you along as you trust his word, okay? Because the Bible is enough, will you trust it in everything? We mentioned money, we mentioned sexuality, something else you're not going to probably talk about is politics. Politics. <laughs> yeah, I went there, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Here's the question. We're about to be in it. We're about to be in it. And we don't talk about politics here, and we, we've had people leave our church because we don't talk enough about politics. We've had people come to our church because we don't talk enough about politics. The Bible's not going to tell you who to vote for. But I wonder, 
is your is your first understanding of your political position the party the party platform is it the news media is it the potential of more money in your pocket and less justice in the world i don't know i don't know but i do know the bible speaks to the role of government in romans and I do know that we could all benefit greatly from it. Are y'all getting wet? You just freezing? Okay. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> um, here's my conviction. If we went to the Bible first and we submitted ourselves to that and we say, would you speak to us here? Here's what I would believe what would happen. And I know some of you are going to disagree with me, but just, just indulge me for a minute. Republicans would begin to think a little more like Democrats. And Democrats might think a little more like Republicans. But wouldn't it be nice if we started first with the Bible and say, help us inform, even if we're on different sides of the aisle. As Christians, let's, let's open the Bible. Let's investigate what it says. Let's, let's try to understand the heart of God on this issue. And people that do will still vote differently. But I'm pleading and, and urging you that the Bible's enough. Start there and build your convictions so that they're based on something substantial rather than just a party platform or, or an economic difference or a social agenda. All those are important. I'm just saying let's not put them first. And then in your outline, if you're using one, we have another. We have a blank because I don't know what you need to trust the Lord for. But I want to be clear, we're not talking about taking the Word of God and proof-texting a conviction where you just go, I'm this, I'm, I found a verse. I want it to form your thinking. That means you need to be in it. That needs, it needs to wash over you. C.S. Lewis, the writer, thinker, author, he has a lot of quotable quotes, but this is one you'd want to take a picture of. And it summarizes what we're trying to get at. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What if this formed my worldview in increasing measure? That would be so awesome. I had a friend invite me over to his house Friday night. I went. He's got lots of teenagers, four of them. We were sitting there, and I was asking them all about their hobbies and what kind of music they listen to. And I was going to ask the 14-year-old girl what kind of music she listened to, and I could see all the other kids going, don't ask her. Don't ask her. And I said, well, what do you listen to? And they're like, oh. What I didn't realize is that she was a, a Swifty. She's a Taylor Swift fan. And it was like starting, you know, a chainsaw. And for 30 minutes, she did not stop. She went through every every album, the, the wardrobe in the concert. She had been to the concert. She just, you have to understand, not everything she writes is about love affairs. Hear the lyrics for another song. And she was just unbelievably convincing. And they all left, and I felt like since I asked the question, I had to stay and listen. They, of course, had heard it all, and I thought to myself, what would happen if I had been saturated and my worldview, not of pop music, but of the realities I live in, was so shaped that I could just go, oh, I'm so glad you asked. You see where I'm going? 
when it came to music, I said, well, do you listen to? No. And I was like, you don't listen to anything else. You don't have any other sources. Taylor Swift is it. That's right. And she's worth it. And of course, she went on at it again. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if, if you go, you know, I, I've poured over the Bible. I've prayed. I've agonized over it. And this is my conviction. And this is why. Now, that, that's amazing. That's amazing. The Bible won't tell you how to get dressed. But it will tell you to clothe yourself in Christ. The Bible won't tell you how to change your tire on your car or your truck. But it will tell you that your identity should not be based on what you drive. The Bible is not going to tell you how to spend your money. But it will tell you that it all comes from God and you're a steward of it. So it will begin to shape the way you think. Bottom line in this is we won't trust the Bible of God until we trust the God of the Bible. And I say that for an important reason. If you're a Christian here, you need to understand that the Bible promises that when we trust in Christ, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide us and help us understand the Bible. Not only help us understand it, but help us obey it. Empower us to live it out. This is the beauty of communion. Christ, life in us, to live his life through us. And so that may be the first step. I meet people all the time. I read the Bible, I read the Bible, I read the Bible. I didn't understand it, I didn't understand it. I trusted in God, and then I began to understand. Faith seeking understanding, not understanding seeking faith. It's Augustine wrote. Because if it's just understanding seeking faith, you won't get there. But if it's faith seeking understanding, God will open it up and help you understand it. What will happen in your life if you trust God, the Bible, as enough? and you go to it as your primary source for understanding life, well, one, your anxiety will go down because it won't be up to you. You'll get to a place where you're living obediently. And why is that freeing? Because I'm doing what God's called me to do. And I have to think about it. This is what he's called me to do. And there's, a, there's a level of anxiety that goes down when that's the case. And what happens when we come together as a community and this is our primary source in our relationships? Well, we're much more forgiving and we're much more unified. And what happens when we're much more unified? We shine more brightly as a community of faith. And what happens when we shine more brightly as a community of faith? The whole world knows there's something different about us. This is how this works. Is the Bible enough? Yes. Because it's enough, will you trust it in everything? Well, that's a decision you'll have to make. But I'll invite you into a love letter that is not designed to constrain you, but to liberate you. It's not designed to just give you a list of things not to do, but to free you into a life that you were designed to live, to give you a calling and a purpose that you, have, you don't have without it, to explain not only origin and purpose, but destiny, to fill us with hope, patience, and truth. Let me pray for us and then we'll transition to communion. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus and your word. Lord, we, we thank you that you've not left us alone, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've made it clear, that you've used language and words in this book, what we call the Bible. 
Thank you for revealing yourself truly to us. Thank you that we can trust so all aspects about it, how it's been trans, transferred to us and how accurate it is, how you trusted it as our example, down to the letters, and down to the words that build the promises. Lord, I pray that we'd be a community of faith that trusts you. We don't, we don't hide. We go first to your word to seek understanding about who you are and what you've called us to be. We give thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.